Oh, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to the book of Titus. Chapter 2 is where we will be today if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. It is always helpful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together, and so you'll find a Bible in a chair back nearby you, and you can find this morning's text on page 998. If you're new to us here at Redeemer, we're in the middle of a short series of sermons through Paul's little letter to his good friend named Titus, who was the pastor of the Christian church on the Greek island of Crete. And we come to a text today that, in my estimation, is probably the most underrated passage that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. One scholar would say it's one of the richest passages of Holy Scripture. Another says it's the rhetorical and Christological high point of the entire letter. Another volume says it is the most concise explanation of gospel-centered living found anywhere in Scripture. It's the truth of Christ in miniature. In four verses, and we're going to look at five together, though, verses 11 through 15. So let me read the passage for us and then pray for our time. Ask God to bless our study, and then we'll begin together. So let us hear now as Christ is speaking to us through His perfect Word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? Let's bow in prayer together once more. Father, we are thankful that you are faithful to your promises, that you remain steadfast and true to your eternal character of glory and majesty, of holiness and wisdom. Lord, as we peer into a passage of Scripture that tells us of your eternal wisdom, your eternal plan and decree to save sinners like us, that you would help us to come to Christ yet again for the power that is found in His grace, for the forgiveness that is found in His work. Maybe some of us in this room this morning coming to Him for the first time in faith to know the fullness of what it means to follow Him as one of His disciples. Lord, we must confess, even as we bow before You now, that we are all a people who are dying. We are soon to see heaven unless Christ returns. So help us to hear this truth that is of eternal importance with eagerness and the weight of eternal significance. I pray that You'd help me to preach as Your Word says I must with courage and with clarity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Those of you that are familiar with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy know that the second book of that trilogy is titled The Two Towers. And like every great epic in literature, it has a climactic battle scene. 
between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And in this book, the climactic battle scene happens in a valley called Helm's Deep. And the armies of good are arrayed behind this firm fortress. Yet in the course of the battle, the armies of evil are continually and increasingly overwhelming the armies of righteousness to such a point where they seem to despair of all hope. But as often happens in the greatest epics that you can ever find, is just as hope is about to vanish, everything changes. And you get a hint of it about three pages before it actually happens, when the great good king-to-be Aragorn steps out on the battle ramparts, heedless of all of the arrows that are around him. And down below, the orcs shout up to him, What are you doing up there? And he says, I'm looking out to the east to see the dawn of the new day. And with derision, they shout back up to him, What of the dawn? We're the fighting Urukai. We do not come to fight for night or day. We do not stop for fair weather or storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? He says, No one knows what the new day shall bring him. And if you know the story, two pages later, the new day brings the great wizard Gandalf bursting off the horizon, out of the horizon in the east, down a mountainous ridge with a new force of good soldiers that lay waste to the evil armies below. Sometimes everything changes with the dawning of a new day. And it's a point that Paul wants to make in our text today because maybe as I read, maybe as I was reading the passage just a second ago, you noticed how Paul repeats twice this word appearing or appearance. You'll see it again, verse 11 and 13. The original word is an epiphany. He is framing this instruction for us this morning around these two epiphanies of Jesus Christ, that just as the sun breaks over the horizon in the east on a new morning, so Paul says Jesus Christ has already broken over the horizon of history, and he will break over the horizon of history yet again. And he's meaning to show us today that the appearances of Jesus Christ change everything for God's people. So the questions that we want to open our minds unto this morning is what exactly is it that ought to change in God's church when God's people look on the appearances of God's Son? What exactly is it that's supposed to be different about our lives now that Christ has already appeared? What's supposed to be different about our lives because He's coming to appear again at the end of the age? And the simple point that Paul is making throughout this passage is the rich gospel truth, the good news that Jesus Christ is the source, He is the substance of His church's holiness. We've seen in recent weeks, if you've been with us in Titus, that the gospel demands lives of godliness from God's people. And Paul's going to help us understand why exactly that can be so. And so the simple point that I'm trying to bring out of our five verses together this morning is that Jesus Christ makes sinners into saints. Jesus comes to make sinners into saints. And maybe you're in here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you're seeking to know more about Jesus Christ and what He has done. Maybe you wonder why it is exactly that Christians throughout our country and throughout the ages have so exalted and magnified the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, I want you to see why we focus our attention there on a tree 
on a hill called Calvary. Because Paul's going to tell us exactly why we must look there today. So we have two appearances of Christ in the text. I just want to walk through our text with two simple headings about his epiphanies. First of all, grace has come. Grace has come. Look at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared. And as always in a Bible study, particularly in gospel passages, you want to pay attention to the prepositions. Emphasize words like, for the grace of God has appeared. Because what did he say in the previous 10 verses? If you were with us uh, last week, you might look back up to verse 1 and remember what we saw. If you weren't with us, this is what we looked at. Verse 1 tells us that Titus, in his ministry, is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's to instruct the church about the fruits of godliness that belong with the gospel. So then he just starts to work through the generations in the church. These are the marks of holiness that belong to older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. And he's telling us now in our text why the gospel demands godliness and how exactly it is that Christ Jesus, through the gospel, works godliness in his people. For the grace of God has appeared. And this grace in this passage is full of power. And two things come immediately to mind about what grace does. First of all, Paul says grace saves. Look at how verse 11 continues. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now students, you you want to make sure you understand what it means that he brings salvation to all people. I had a church member come up to me earlier this week asking me about what does it mean that he saves all people. Well, it doesn't mean that he saves every person everywhere in every era. It does mean that he saves all people. The gospel goes forth, is proclaimed to all people without distinction. That the good news is offered to every man and woman, boy and girl, without regard to their age, their class, their ethnicity, their wealth, their vocation, their education. The gospel belongs to all people. He's bringing salvation. The grace of Jesus Christ brings salvation to all people. So kids, if you have grown up in the church, if you have godly Christian parents, I would imagine that you're familiar with this word salvation. Now, kids, how would you describe it? How would you explain it to a friend? Parents, you might ask your children over lunch today, son or daughter, how would you explain salvation? How would you describe it? Well, kids, what you need to know, in the first century in which Titus was living, the word originally meant safety. So if you're familiar with baseball, maybe you play it, you watch it on TV, of course, it's not going to be too far into a game where you see an umpire make a signal. Which is a declaration of what? Safety. Paul doesn't tell us, though, in this passage, does he, what Christ saves us from. What does he save us from? Well, Paul makes it quite clear in his other writings, doesn't he? You can turn to a passage even like Romans chapter 5, one of those famous declarations of the gospel there to the church at Rome where he says, God, why we're still yet sinners, sent his son to die for us. Therefore, having been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from, if you know the text, from the wrath of God? We must be saved by God, from God, and saved to God in Jesus Christ. That our sins in which we were born, the nature 
in which we were born demands God's justice, demands God's wrath because of our disobedience. And here the good news of Christ's grace is that he has saved us. All people without distinction this offer goes to in the Spirit and through the Word. So we're going to find out in just a few verses exactly how it is that the grace of Jesus Christ saves his own people. But for the point that he continues on in this passage, at least, is first of all that grace saves and second of all that grace sanctifies. Look at verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, training us. Uh, The word was taken from the world of education. It speaks of this picture of a teacher training a student. And oftentimes in the New Testament, training has a negative connotation to it. It means correction. It means discipline. It means reproof into the truth. Uh, But here it's more positive in its note, forming and instructing God's people. Grace trains Christ's people. A few years ago, I was reading a book, this best-selling book on the Christian life that had just been published that was, you know, making its way through the congregation that I was pastoring at the time. And it was a book about grace in the Christian life, how you live a grace-filled, grace-fueled life in Jesus Christ. And along the way, uh, the author sought to define grace in this way. It's giving ourselves and others a break. And I remember when you read texts like that, at least I read texts like that, there was suddenly this great heartache that you feel, because that's not a full picture of grace according to Scripture. Grace isn't just the forgiveness of sins. It's the power to obey. Grace doesn't just cleanse us. Grace corrects us. That's what Paul means to emphasize here, for the grace of God has appeared. Notice how verse 12 continues, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So to come to Jesus Christ in faith is to be put in his school of grace, and he wants us to learn a couple lessons about grace. The first is the lesson of leaving, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In the earliest church, when adult converts were baptized, there was often this baptismal ceremony where they would stand before the congregation, and they were asked a long series of questions, vows, and affirmations to make before the church, and one that was true throughout the various churches in the Middle East at that time is that you would have an adult convert come up for baptism, and they would ask, do you renounce Satan? Do you denounce the devil's dominion over you? Because you have been brought into the kingdom of light, delivered from the domain of darkness. Do you say no to Satan's rule over you. That's what Paul's after here, isn't he? Renouncing, repudiating ungodliness and worldly passions. Uh, We often, don't we, in our culture, will refer to a person as having a hard time to say no. A man or a woman or a child, often eager to please, and so much so that it's very difficult for them to say no. Spiritually speaking here, the grace of Jesus Christ is training us to say no to ungodliness, to worldliness, I wonder if you said no at all this week. Was there any place in your life where you said no to godliness? Was there any place in your week where you said no to worldliness? When did you say it? Why did you say it? Paul says only grace will allow you to say it. Grace trains us in the lesson of leaving, but also the lesson of living. Because notice how he continues in verse 12, the grace of God has appeared, training us to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in the present age. We want to see again, don't we, the importance for Paul, for the apostles of self-control to the Christian life. So important has it been, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, you can look back to chapter 1, verse 8. It's a requirement of elders in the church. Chapter 2, verse 2, it's a requirement of older men. Chapter 2, verse 5, it's a requirement of older women. Chapter 2, verse 6, it's a requirement of younger men. Here in verse 12, it's a requirement of all Christians to live a life of self-control, passions under check by the Spirit, emotions held in place by the grace of Jesus Christ. Not just that, of course, upright lives as well. Speaking of honesty, of justice, of righteousness in ethical manners, Christians by grace are to be the most trustworthy people that you can find. Also, of course, they're to live godly lives, he says. Devotion to Christ, devotion to God with their heads, with their hearts, with their hands. In this present age, trained to leave sin, trained to live in righteousness. This is the kind of grace that saves. It's the kind of grace that sanctifies, the kind of grace that teaches and trains. And so what Paul is saying here in context, understand this in Titus chapter 2. He is saying that the grace of Jesus Christ, and simply really is Jesus Christ himself, not only makes godliness possible, he demands it as a necessity of his church. Grace has come. That's the first coming. The second coming we find in verse 13 is the glory that's coming. Grace has come and glory is coming. A couple of weeks ago, our family was on the way up to Colorado. We took a, a brief respite in the mountains. And as we were on the way on this short little road trip, as you would expect of a car full of six little children in the back seats, that we often would hear questions like, how long is it going to be until we get there? And understandings of time due to the age of our children is not the best in the world, so it doesn't help to say two hours and 15 minutes or one hour and 36 minutes. And so what we did is just look out on the horizon, kids, see who can be the first one that spots the mountains burst into view. And whether or not it actually helped them, it nonetheless spoke to this expectation, this eagerness that we wanted them to feel in waiting, that there can be a kind of waiting that is kind of tense with hardness, maybe with bitterness, with concern and worry, but there's another kind of waiting that can be full of happiness and eagerness. And some of you know that the Christian life is often little more than waiting on God to move, to act, to answer, to grow His people. You find out in part why it exactly is. Notice verse 13, we're to grow in godliness, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, students, you can circle the back end of verse 13. Stare down at it and notice how in a very subtle, subversive, and significant way, the Apostle Paul has just declared that Jesus Christ is what? God. He's not just Savior. Our God is going to appear. And that appearance is one which we are hopefully waiting for. It's one that we long to see. And you want to pay attention even to the adverbs, or I'm sorry, the adjectives, these modifiers in verse 13. Why is it that we're hoping for a blessed Savior? Why is it that we are hoping for a great God whose name is Jesus Christ? Well, he answers those questions in verse 14, just the first five words in the ESV. 
Why is he blessed? Why is he great? Why is he glorious? Why is he to be longed for? Because he gave himself for us. You can notice, underline, underscore, meditate on that word, gave. He wasn't forced to give his life on the hill of Calvary. He gave it for us. No one took his life from him. At the moment of crucifixion, he laid it down willingly. Why is it that we are waiting for our blessed hope, our great Savior? He gave himself for us. And he means to do something in us and through us. There are two reasons. you notice why he gave himself. First of all, he gave himself to redeem us. Verse 14 continues, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. 1 John 3 verse 14 says, sin is lawlessness. He gave himself to redeem us from all sin. To buy back his people from the dominion of darkness. To purchase back slaves to Satan's rule. To liberate the captives from the prison of transgression. To break the chains of iniquity. He came to redeem his people from all lawlessness. Number two, he gave himself to renew us. Notice as the verse continues, he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people. Now kids, the word purify here just means to make clean. Uh, yesterday, the rains came to our house and somewhere along the way, it was about 10.30 in the morning, our two youngest ones, a little older than one and one soon to be three disappeared from the house. And what that means is they were in the backyard, which I didn't want them in the backyard because there's muddy in the backyard. So sure enough, about six or seven minutes later, hadn't heard Boston or Sarah in some time, you go outside and you see them covered in mud. Sarah says, Daddy, we're playing in the puddles in which Boston is sitting covered in mud. So of course, you can come inside when you are clean. We have to clean you off to come inside. We have to purify you to come inside. The Father says, come into my family, but you must be clean. Your garments must be white to dine with me. And Christ Jesus says, I will make them white. My blood will wash away the stain of their iniquity to purify for himself, a people. Notice, for his own possession. The language of own possession was actually used in the first century to speak about the spoil of war that a commanding king took for himself. The spoils that he reserved for his own possession. And here it is, Jesus Christ saying, I know who belongs to me. I am giving myself for my people, for my chosen ones, for the elect of God, they belong to me and I'm placing my stamp of love on them. So maybe those of you who are Christians in here today, that's the most comforting truth you need to hear this morning. He has chosen you. He has set you apart. He has selected you. He looks upon you and says, he belongs to me. He looks upon you and says, she is mine. He looks upon you, young child, and says, that boy or that girl belongs to me. I gave my life for him or her. 
to be a people for my own possession. Notice how the text continues. Who are zealous for good works? Zealous for good works. In a true sense, then, isn't it right? Every Christian is to be a zealot. Uh, The word actually comes from a verb in the Greek that means to boil. Christians are to be boiling, stirred up for good works, inflamed by love for Christ, boiling over with works that exalt Him, that honor Him, that glorify Him. I wonder what you tend to boil about most, what you tend to be zealous for, for whom you tend to be most zealous throughout the week. Christians are God's people, Christ's chosen possession, whom He has given Himself for, to redeem, to renew, people who are zealous for good works. So let me speak to you this morning, if you're in here today and you're not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, a few minutes ago, we said that every Christian lives a life of waiting. Well, the truth of the matter is every human being lives a life of waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. And your sin, the nature of your life in which you were born, you deserve God's wrath for your iniquity. So what you're waiting for, the Bible tells us, is God's justice and judgment to fall upon you. Your waiting ought to be not one full of hope, but full of terror, because God's justice demands that it be satisfied against your sin. But the good news that you see in this passage, in part, is what you don't find in the passage. There's nothing in here that says, here's what you can do to earn the grace of this Savior. It would not be grace if you could earn it. Here's what you must merit. Here's what you must perform if you are to get His glory. It wouldn't be glorious if you could earn it. He says you must receive it. This Lord who gave Himself for sinners like you and me by turning from your sin and trusting Him, your waiting now is moved from terror to hope. Because what you get on the other side when this Savior returns is forgiveness blessedness, seeing the King in His beauty at the Father's right hand for all eternity in perfect rest and righteousness. Jesus makes sinners, even like you and me, into saints. And so central, you'll notice, is this ministry, this declaration that Titus is to emphasize it. Look at the fourfold volley of commands in verse 15. Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, Let no one disregard you. The kind of ministry that healthy churches need is the kind of ministry that is the authoritative declaration of what Jesus Christ has done. That Jesus Christ is coming again. And wise pastors know that sometimes that kind of declaration is positive. It's an encouragement to continue on in the Christian life, in the Spirit, and by God's grace. Sometimes it is more negative to rebuke Christians, God's family, away from sin. So never disregard such a ministry. Never disregard such ministers that preach the grace of Christ in all of its fullness and power. One of our children reached a milestone on his march to manhood earlier this week. One afternoon, we let him loose on the neighborhood on his bicycle. What that means is it was the furthest away he's ever been able to travel out of our eyesight on that two-wheeled machine. 
And so, as he left, my wife's parting comments to him were, put your helmet on. My comments were, look both ways when you cross the street. And off he went. Children, I wonder how often you've heard that comment, look both ways when you cross the street. Do you see how by the Spirit and theologically speaking, the Apostle tells Christians today, look both ways? With one eye, look to the inauguration of grace, and the other eye, look to the consummation of grace. With both eyes, look unto Jesus Christ, the Savior who changes sinners into saints by His grace. And so we've said often throughout this series that Titus is receiving these instructions from Paul so he can grow, so he can increase the health of the church in Crete. And what Paul is telling us right here in the center of the book, the center of a church's health comes from preaching and looking to the center of Christianity, who is Jesus Christ himself, looking with one eye to what he has done in his first coming, always looking with the other eye to what he will do when he returns. So what I want to do as we just begins to close, is bring out two simple and in every way obvious implications of what this text must mean for a church's health. Or what it looks like when God's people look at the appearances of Jesus Christ. First of all, if we look to Christ's appearances, we grow in holiness. Christ's appearances grow us in holiness. In ways you maybe are not understood, it really is the central theme of Titus. Look unto Jesus Christ for the health of holiness in the life of the church. He's telling us that Jesus gave himself, that Jesus came, that Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law, that he laid down his life, that he rose again three days later in order, as Ephesians 5 says, to present a people to his Father, who would be what? Holy, blameless, undefiled, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. And maybe you know that the last 40 years in American church history have been full of books and conferences and all kinds of conversations exhorting pastors and church leaders to grow the church. We have institutes of church growth at various seminaries in our country, professors of church growth at various seminaries in our country. And if you've ever paid attention to that conversation regarding church growth and had ears to hear, you know that ordinarily conversations related to church growth focus on money and members buildings and bodies. The Bible focuses on church growth, doesn't it? But when was the last time you came across a church whose mission statement, vision, philosophy was by God's grace and the Spirit of Christ, we are growing a holy people unto the Lord. Christ's appearances grow us in holiness. So I wonder what it is that you hope would grow most about this church. I dare say that what you would find in Scripture is as God's people grow in holiness, probably everything else we would put as an answer to that question comes in the wake of God's people growing in godliness that befits, that belongs with sound doctrine. Number two, Christ's appearances grow us in hope. Not only holiness, but hope. Some time ago, I read an article from the Atlantic magazine that was titled, The Disappearance of Virtue in American Politics. And as you would probably understand, the author was lamenting the loss of dignity and civility in American public discourse. And I wondered about that earlier this week, thinking about our text, wondering if a good thought exercise for some of us might be changing that title a little bit and having a conversation with church members about it, the disappearance of biblical virtues in Christ's church. What virtues 
fruits of the Spirit seem to be absent from Christ's church, vacated the premises in our culture and context today. So as I was thinking about that my own self, I wonder if for my own mind I wouldn't put hope at or certainly very near the top of Christian virtues lost in churches today. You don't have to travel around our culture. You don't have to travel around our context very long to recognize that many Christians today are trapped to pessimism and skepticism uh, when it comes to where we're going. Paul tells us where we're going, doesn't he? Blessed hope. I dare say to be a pessimist in Christ is to misunderstand Christ. He is coming and he will make all things new. It's the faith-filled certainty that joy is on the way. It's the earnest eagerness for the consummation of all things to come when we'll finally renew the new heavens and the new earth and we'll bring holiness perfect and final, full and free to his people once and for all. Surely it's important for us then to recognize how 1 Corinthians 13 says, alongside faith and love, the cardinal Christian virtuous hope. Looking to Christ's appearances grow us and holiness grows us in hope. So students and children, you're probably only a few weeks away, maybe days away from starting another school year. Lessons will be learned on the way. Some of those lessons will be new. Some of those lessons will be reminders of what you forgot over the summer. God's Word is telling us that in Jesus Christ, the Spirit has put us in the Savior's school of grace until He returns. Sometimes we need to learn lessons that we never knew. But maybe it's often true that what we need to know most, remember most, is the basics of what Christ has done for us and who He is. Godliness belongs with the gospel. Why? Because Christ's grace has appeared. Christ's glory is coming. So the lesson for us to learn then maybe today is, yes, indeed, Jesus makes sinners into saints. Jesus makes sinners into saints, growing in holiness, growing in hope by the King of grace. Let us pray together. Father, we hope that you would guide us and lead us to greater faithfulness, uh, that we would take this text, that we would take your truth and by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, bring to life the things of the Spirit, that our Lord would train us by his grace to indeed be zealous for good works, to grow in the fruits of the Spirit, that he might be exalted so lift our eyes, we pray, that we might look to our faith's founder and author, running our race, waiting with hope and perseverance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.